Hello and welcome. You're listening to On Show, the Louvre Abu Dhabi podcast that takes you on a tour. For this second episode in our mini-series looking at the architecture of the Louvre Abu Dhabi, join us under the dome for an interview with architect Halawade. As associate of Jean Nouvel and director of the project, Halawade looks back with us at the Louvre Abu Dhabi adventure. From the very first sketch to the final installation of the dome, join us as we talk about the key stages of this highly challenging project. Thank you very much, Halawade, for talking with us today under the dome of the Louvre Abu Dhabi. Before going into more detail about this architectural masterpiece, I'd like to look back at a specific event in 2006. You were on a train to London, together with Jean Nouvel, who was drawing a sketch right in front of you. Could you tell us about this special moment? <laughs> yes, of course. Jean Nouvel told me about his meeting with Thomas Krenz, at that time director of the Guggenheim, who had been asked by the Emirati to design the cultural district on Sadiat Island. He had already in mind a series of institutions and museums and had suggested architects to build them, starting with Frank Gehry for a Guggenheim museum. He'd thought of Jean Nouvel for what at that time was termed a museum of classical art or a museum of civilizations. He'd also got Zaha Hadid lined up for a performing arts centre and Tadao Ando for a maritime museum. Jean jotted all this down on a scrap of paper. He told me about the museum project and that there was this island, that several museums were going to be developed there and that his was going to be there. And he started to tell me that he wasn't going to create one building, he'd rather create a district, that is, a series of buildings which would be on the water, not on land or at least on the shore. The idea was to create a sort of microclimate in this small town and to install a large dome with all the symbolism that such a dome evokes, both in Arab culture, because a dome is a very strong symbol in Arab culture, and more broadly in terms of the evocation of a somewhat spiritual aspect of the cosmos. The outer spaces of this town would also therefore be protected by this microclimate. For me, at least, that small sketch was the beginning of the project. And what were the keywords he used, which still resonate today? It's a project based on light and geometry, ultimately the two essential elements of Islamic architecture. So it's the museum city, it's the reign of light, I don't remember whether he'd already mentioned this concept at the time, but there was this idea of a building that wasn't just going to be a building, but a district with inside and outside elements, which was going to be a place for strolling around, a, a place interacting with its location in an extremely powerful way. The second stage was to actually visit the location, and getting there was a whole other adventure. Yes, tell us about that first encounter with the site. That's perhaps a little hard to imagine today, given all the buildings under construction surrounding us, now that the museum building has been handed over. This all makes the island feel very dynamic. What did Sadiat Island look like the first time you went there? How did you get there? Back in 2006, Sadiat Island was completely desert-like. There was absolutely nothing. To get there, you had to go either by boat, which was very pleasant, 
you just had to go down to the port and take a boat to explore it, or by helicopter, which was quicker. We opted for the latter. That helicopter flight over the site was the first time we saw it. It was very striking. The shoreline, the meeting of water and sand, and yet again, and more importantly, the extremely striking changing light. So, at this stage, you'd seen the sketch, you'd got the project's objectives in mind, you'd explored the site. For you, as an architect, what crossed your mind back then? What were the practical challenges? In reality, we weren't exactly starting from scratch, lucky for us, as opposed to our neighbours. Tom Krenz had already approached the other architects, We thus knew what Frank Gehry had designed for his Guggenheim Museum. It was to be an extremely imposing structure, 80 metres high, etc. We had seen his project, or at least his first design, on the one side, but also that of Zaha Hadid's project for her performing arts centre on the other. Aware of these two projects, we already knew something about our neighbours and what would be in the vicinity. You could imagine what the skyline of Sadiat Island was going to look like. Yes, so it was a question of rhythm, because we were effectively building a skyline, as you said, and so we decided to do something very horizontal to contrast with these two rather prominent vertical structures. The idea was to go for something horizontal, very low in the water, playing with the rhythm of the skyline. We've talked about water on several occasions. Very much present in the museum with all these pools, there's one very significant moment that I'd like to come back to with you, and it's how water came to be part of the museum and what you can tell us about why it was necessary to go through this step to complete the project. Well, that takes us already up to the construction stage. It turned out to be a very complex project. We had to start by getting the site dry. Hundreds or even thousands of pumps had to be installed to pump out the water. Obviously, people know how to do that in this region. It's been done in several cities around here. We thus had to pump out the water to build the museum and all the buildings on a dry site as well as the dome. This all required very complex planning. For the companies to be able to do both at the same time, the whole organisation was extremely complicated. However, once the site was basically dry, we have some beautiful photos of all these pipes, we started ramming in the piles. I forget the exact number, but there must be some 4,500 of them. Only then were we able to start building, just the substructure at this point. One of our biggest challenges was the fact that the dome is extremely flat in terms of structure. It's complicated. You have to anchor it very, very deep because it tends to rise up. In fact, the whole museum tends to rise up. We had to dig very, very deep, sometimes 18 metres deep, to properly anchor the museum in the water. That's why one of the construction highlights was when the museum was completed, when all the buildings and piles were in place and we opened the pumps, which had been completely shut until this point. Were you there for that? On site? Yes, of course I was there. I was on the shore where we could watch the water flowing in. It took a few days, mind you, but the water coming in like that was a really emotional moment. The building was finally meeting its natural environment. Like a fish, it started to twitch as if saying, I need my water to finally come to life. And that was absolutely magical. 
It was really very beautiful. I was talking about the light and the play of light, which is very striking, which is a feature of the dome, of course, and the cupola. Actually, we're talking about many cupolas and many domes because it is made up of these eight layers. Though the light changes with the speed of light, it sometimes seems a bit dry. But thanks to the presence of water, and that's why we put it there, it's everywhere, even in the indoor pools, because the wind makes the surface of the water vibrate and the water in turn makes the light vibrate. Speaking of light, the rays of sunlight pass through the dome, weaving their way through the different layers. I'd like to come back to this incredible structure. What stages did you go through to create this iconic feature of the museum? Yes, that was basically the greatest challenge. We worked both by trial and error, using models, lights and prototype tests, etc. And in a very scientific way, because we were obviously assisted by a team of engineers and air conditioning experts in particular. They spent ages calculating the amount of light and therefore heat which needed to be absorbed. We tried to determine the degree of openness. The first sketch we made showed that about 10% of the light passed through. We made an initial model which we tested in an artificial light laboratory, the largest in Europe, in Stuttgart, where light, in this case from Abu Dhabi, was simulated at various times of the day and at various times of the year so that we could see how it behaved using cutting-edge technology. Yes, the technology used was extremely state-of-the-art. We could never have built this building 10 years earlier. It looks quite traditional, but it isn't at all. It is made using extremely advanced technology for the dome as well as for the buildings, for example, fibre concrete, which didn't exist at the time. Following these artificial light tests, it became clear that 10% was too much light. So we began to reduce it a little. We worked on the latticework design and as we had already created the layout of the town underneath, we started to map out the areas where there could be more or less light. For instance, we wanted more shade where people would be strolling around. On the other hand, we thought a bit more light would benefit the large temporary exhibition gallery, so we opened it up a little more. This way, we mapped out the areas where we wanted more or less light. And this is what dictated, to a certain extent, the different openings. As a result, the dome is not at all uniform. Made up of stars, it responds in an extremely precise way to extremely specific constraints. These are associated either with the museum layout or with the individual galleries, as we wanted more or less light to be allowed in to ensure the public's comfort outdoors, while also creating an interplay of light and shadow. And for you, facing such a challenge, when the idea for the dome first came about, when you started to think about how to build it, what were your first thoughts? As an architect, how did you feel about this challenge? Oh yes, the dome was an incredible challenge. Obviously, we as architects needed specialists to help us overcome the challenge. First, there was the structural challenge. It was fascinating because it was something that had never been done before, whether in terms of its dimensions, 100 metres in diameter, or having it rest on four feet, well, pillars. Which we can't even see. Which we can't see. It's a really magical space made up of an immense celestial vault which floats right above us and whose attachment points we can't see. Exactly. We just don't see them. It's what Jean Nouvel calls the aesthetics of the miracle. Basically, we're inside something magical and we don't know what holds it all together. 
It remains a mystery because they've been so well hidden. It's a structure that had to be invented. We didn't make it easy for the engineers. First of all, there was the challenge of the span, 180 metres that had to be supported in one go, but also of the structure itself. Five metres thick, the dome has eight layers, whereby we call the bottom four the cupola and the top four the dome. I understand. The four layers of cupolas are made of aluminium, the four domes of stainless steel, because it is more resistant to the elements. It's the multiple layers which create the effects of light we can see throughout the design and even the construction phase. We were lucky enough to be able to conduct some real tests. As I was saying, we made an initial model in the artificial light laboratory, but we wanted to make a proper model in Abu Dhabi as soon as we could. To scale? To scale, yes, but not the whole thing. We made a one-to-one section that was 15 metres by 50 metres. That is just one hundredth of the dome. But still... We made another model to a scale of 1 to 33. It's a scale often used for concert halls because it's a scale which you can put your head into so that you get an idea of the space. That way, we discovered new things that all the computers didn't show us. Dealing with reality on the ground. Dealing with reality. And that's why all the artificial intelligence and all the calculations are never enough. Because one of the things we saw with regard to this large dome, there's quite a famous photo of Jean Nouvel with Sheikh Sultan with their heads under this large model, is that these plays of light could actually be seen. One thing, for example, that the computers hadn't calculated was the light coming in from the side. There was a sort of, uh, I suppose light pollution coming in from the sides, which meant that the shadows weren't very sharp. In other words, there wasn't enough contrast. Thanks to this observation made on site, the decision was taken to block the light around the edges of the dome. As you can see when you walk around, the edges of the dome are much thicker. We reinforce the lattice work of the design by making the whole base of the dome a lot thicker around the entire edge. And the other thing we did, because we had to trap the light using very dark elements, was to make the floor, which we had originally planned to be in quite light granite, as you can see here, darker around the rim. We used basalt, the darkest dome we had, because it, in combination with the thicker base of the dome, traps the light and prevents it from coming in. The other thing we learned from the one-to-one model was that the cylindrical shape of the internal structure made of tubes was very noticeable. We asked to have a change, making things even more complicated for the engineers. You had a lot of asks, didn't you? Yes, we asked a lot. We asked for the tubes to be replaced by rectangular elements, for there to be no wells, and for everything to be held together by mechanical fasteners. The whole structure was redesigned using rectangular structures and fasteners that were completely mechanical. So you're saying that there are no welds at all in the dome? At least as few as possible, because it also has to be adaptable. There is in fact a level of flexibility which has to be allowed for in domes. You were talking about important events, like the arrival of the water, but the other thrill was the moment when the dome came to rest on these four pillars. Oh yes, tell us about it, because it's incredible to think that such a huge, massive, impressive dome could have been lifted. Yes, yes, it weighs 7,000 tonnes. Just imagine. That's the same as the Eiffel Tower, isn't it? Yes, it's pure coincidence. Obviously, we didn't do it on purpose. We're not from Paris, though the Eiffel Tower also has four legs. But as I was saying, in order to build the town at the same time as the dome, we had to put up temporary structures. 
there were 60 or so pillars supporting the dome. And these 60 were to become just four? That's right. They had to be reduced to four. And the 60, that's because the dome was made in several pieces. When the structure was finished and the pillars were ready to receive it, there was a moment when we held our breath, but it didn't last long. It happened overnight. Was everyone there? Yes, we were all there, including the engineers. It was really a great moment. Was Jean Nouvel with you? Jean wasn't on site, I seem to remember. But I think he was on the phone. I'm sure he was holding his breath as well, wherever he was. Again, it was a real challenge to see whether this 180 metre span would behave as it was supposed to in that moment, whether it would bend or not. They started by jacking it up a few centimetres, perhaps 40. It was a big event. The chairman and everybody else was there and we went over to see the jack that was going to lift it, but we were told to go to the other side because soon we were going to see it being lifted. I think it was filmed from the outside, from the opposite side. We watched the dome slowly rise up. Then they removed the temporary structures and it came to rest on all four pillars. And then there was this lovely surprise. It was impeccable. Not a single jolt, no, nothing. That was it. Fantastic. So far, the dome has held up well, raining, so to speak, over its town. The dome has become the museum's hallmark. In fact, it's featured in the museum logo at the entrance. And I think it really fascinates visitors. When they arrive for the first time, you can see that look of wonder, that wow. Now that the project is completed, what do you now feel when you walk in these spaces, when you enjoy this light? Well, it's a very familiar place. I've seen it a thousand times. And the great thing is that I'm, I never see the same thing twice. It's, it's really extraordinary. It still surprises you? Yes, it still surprises me. Firstly, because the light changes and that's what's so extraordinary. But what I love most, you mentioned people seeing it for the first time, is watching the eyes of those seeing it for the first time. In fact, I've put together a small collection of photos of people's expressions when seeing it, because it's true that seeing it for the first time is like seeing a mythical place or a famous city. You always want that moment of first seeing it to be amazing. I love seeing that in people's eyes, and I must say it continues to surprise me. I think that it is its true great quality. And even if I come back 100,000 times, even if I live to be 100,000 years old, which will not happen, but I'll never really see the same thing. Thank you very much for giving us this interview. It has been fascinating. Thank you very much. I could go on and on about this museum. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. This was an episode of On Show, the Louvre Abu Dhabi podcast that takes you on a tour. If you enjoyed this mini-series, you can listen to this episode again or find our interview with Jean Nouvel on all your favourite podcast platforms. Simply subscribe to the Louvre Abu Dhabi channel to discover or rediscover our past episodes and to ensure you do not miss the next ones. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and give us a five-star rating. On Show is a podcast produced by the Louvre Abu Dhabi. Executive production by Amin Karchash and myself, Marine Bodon. Recording by Amin Karchash and Richard Hagen. Post-production music and mixing by Making Waves. Our warmest thanks to Hala Wade for giving us this interview. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for our next episodes. <laughs>